Welcome to the Top M&A Entrepreneurs Podcast. Today, I have a guest, Reg Zeller. Reg is from Aram Foundry. He's done a number of acquisitions. How many acquisitions, Reg? Uh, six so far. We literally signed our LOI for our seventh one about an hour ago. Congratulations. Uh, he's a serial acquisition entrepreneur. So we are going to talk about that story, Reg. I love it. How, yeah, how did you get started? It. I see on LinkedIn you did you worked at a number of Fortune 500 companies, right? Yep. Yeah. So the simple answer is grew up in a small town, knew a lot more people that did small business type work than anything else. Ended up inside of big corporations for 17 years, ran into a bad boss that always thought this will be great to do something myself. So Ended up doing exactly that. Uh, ended up that would have been August of 2016. Started looking for a business, found it. First business I actually had ever walked through. It was a foundry uh, or a small business that I looked at. Looked at a bunch of Sims, but nothing really caught my eye. And then found this one. Walked in four months later. Uh, bought it. Yeah. So, so where did you find it? Was a broker or? Yeah, I'd networked a little bit and it was someone who knew somebody and said, hey, this sell biz buy thing, which it took me a long time to figure out it was actually biz buy sell to go figure out where it even find this business to, to look for it type of thing. But yeah, it was being done through a local broker, a husband and wife. It was one of those things where dad had started it back in the 40s. And then this guy had taken it over who was in his late 60s by the time I bought it. And uh, none of the family wanted to be involved. So yeah, you know, kind of the classic, especially in the manufacturing side of small business. It's uh, you, you're kind of the, that story 101. Yeah. You're uh, so what made you decide to work on talk about boring. I mean, this is uh, Andrew Carnegie got his stuff where yes. you're building, buying these uh, foundries, but these are yeah, non-ferrous yeah. foundries, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. So it's mainly aluminum. Generally speaking for people, what it amounted to is when I graduated seven undergrad in electrical engineering, everybody that I graduated with went into computers, software, et cetera. I went in and did more manufacturing, generally speaking. So it was one of those things where just continued to grow up in manufacturing. When we were working there, so my last four years, roughly of being in corporate as a general manager, one of the divisions at General Electric and just thought that there was a, a real need for local US-based manufacturing. I think there's absolutely a need for product being manufactured in Mexico and India and China and everywhere else, but there's also a niche of products and a need to build those here in the US. So didn't really care what manufacturing. I'd run so many different manufacturing operations in my life that it was, uh, I would say, a little bit of a, a widget. Didn't really matter to me what widget it was. Uh -huh. Happened to find a foundry for sale that I could buy 100% of with an SBA deal. And, you know, here we are uh, five and a half years later and about to do number seven. That's fantastic. Uh, so what what do foundries in the middle of middle of the country look like in, in revenue and multiples? And, you know, was, no. the, seller, was the seller kind of... Uh, reasonable about his asking oh, yeah, price? for sure yeah we actually you know for them it was much more about their legacy again this is what i've found a lot of times these things have been family owned you know typically it was a lot of times grandpa came home from the war in the 40s started a business and they're in the in the middle of the country they're no different than if you're on the coasts we own them they're kind of all over the country right now so 
that's the big thing is that, you know, it's like all small businesses. Uh, well, maybe not all, but most of them anywhere from two to five times earnings type numbers, the, the more impaired they get, the lower that multiple is. We bought a few of them for one or two times earnings, but you know, the same thing, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of foundries across the country are already private equity owned. We're below what private equity or micro private equity would look at um, for individual shops. But now that we've put all these things together, uh, certainly have a lot of conversations with, with the private equity guys or strategic buyers that are interested in what we're doing, but we're not for sale. We're going to keep, you know, I own a hundred percent done everything with debt. We're now past the place where, you know, we're under traditional debt financing. So, you know, now it's just as fast as we can. Yeah. You them can't uh, roll them up. Yeah. You can't, you can only buy borrow. What is it? 5 million bucks from SBA in a 10 year yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you get, you get, you can get up to total and there's a lot of banks that'll get you a, a secondary loan to get you to, you know, seven, eight, nine million dollars. But, you know, to, once you get into that 15, 20 and above, yeah, anytime you get, I mean, they used to kind of a hard number was $5 million before you get into traditional financing. They're becoming a little bit looser with that over the last few years, just has been so much money sloshing around in the system. But at the same time, this is really, I would say an interesting market that, you know, once you get to it, it doesn't look any different in traditional finance when you get above that $5 million yeah, yeah. for sure. So, you know, it's so what is that first business you looked at and you decided on how many times did you visit, drive to there and meet the owner and like develop in this relationship? Yeah. And making sure that, you know, he looked into your eyes and goes, I like this guy. He's going to continue my legacy yeah. I, and take care of my employees. Yeah. Yeah. So we met. Uh, I think we met three times uh, at length. So kind of a first visit and then brought my wife back for the second one. And then a the third one, we did a couple of deep dives uh, throughout probably a two, three hour period. And then we met not at that place, but as we progressed down, met them for coffee a couple of times, met some of the key customers, met some of the key employees, et cetera. So that, you know, they wasn't interrupting per se the, the day-to-day operations, but at the same time, you know, had this plan and this path of what direction they were comfortable with us going as well as that we were comfortable with doing it. And so it's an interesting story because we actually, our bid was a million dollars under what the top bid was. So. Oh, so it was getting multiple bids. I would Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There was 50, there's 50 some bids on the, on the facility within the first, I think three weeks, four weeks being on the, on the market with LOIs, I should say. Wow. That's a lot of bids. I mean, I, it, it, I, you know, coming from California and you look at all these technology companies, right. I, you would think that a foundry would just sit there for months and months and months going. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now they would Uh different story. Five, six years. I mean, there's a lot of businesses. I think, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's a, a lot, a lot of foundries. It's really hard to do business in California for foundries oh, because yeah. of some of the environmental and whatnot. But yeah, the the highest number of foundries, the biggest concentration in the country is you know, between the Rust Belt and California. Big thing out there, California, why is aerospace. We're just choosing 
I don't want to deal with the government regulations. We will not be buying a foundry in California. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I don't need that headache in my life. We've got enough of them as it is. Yeah. Well, so what do you think convinced the seller to go with you and a million dollars under uh, uh, other bids? Yeah, there's two things. One was obviously the relationship that I had to get developed. I think people, especially if you're going to buy a small business, that tends to be very rare that people understand that, that it, it, it is about the relationship. This is their baby. You know, they've probably worked in it since they were a kid um, or the business may have been around before they were, they knew all the customers, all the employees, you know, they've been to weddings and graduations and funerals and whatnot. And they, you know, especially if they've owned it for 30, 40 years, they've got plenty of money. They, it's less about the money and it's more about continuing a legacy and ensuring all of their folks are taken care of. And then the other side, um, you know, he understood the seller that if we would have done as an individual financer of what some of the other bids were in lean years, we would have had a real problem dealing with debt service. So he went and penciled it out and kind of said, all right, well, I kind of understand roughly speaking what your payments are going to be. And I understand what bad years may occur and, we don't want to. Uh, we don't want you to have to do anything dumb, you know, cutting workers, firing workers, or you know, cutting costs and hurting kind of the brand and the legacy, or you personally having a problem. So, you know, we're rather like we agree your number. We understand how you got there, and we agree with the concept that this protects you from the downside and protects our business for the long term. Did you make some kind of guarantees like, hey, we're not going to fire people, you know, we're going to keep the name, we're going to keep the legacy or change things too much, like scare people? No, I think that, I mean, it's just, if you go buy a business and you don't know anything about it and you start changing things all the time, you're going to get what you deserve. So that's a whole different story. It's like starting any new job, you know, take 60 or 90 days at a minimum to learn build trust, build the relationships. The only, the thing I say to everybody is at a minimum, don't change anything in your workers' lives unless it's purely for the good. And there'll be ways that they'll interpret things that you think are good that aren't. So if it's short of giving them a raise, everything else, they're going to figure out how to catastrophize and have a problem with it. So Mm. you have to be very careful. You you can tell them, Hey, uh, we're changing you over to this payroll system, but you actually are going to be paid you know, differently, but more, or, Hey, we're changing benefits. Their healthcare benefits are better. And you know, somehow that turns into, Oh my God, they're cutting costs. Now they're going to fire us. It's like, oh, <laughs> an yeah. interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. hole to go down right there. I'm like, I, I didn't, I didn't quite get from point A to point B by saying that I was making your life. Better, see, I'm, I'm going to uh, pay you more and benefits are better. Yeah. Oh my God. yeah and, uh, and somehow that'll be viewed as a negative. So, you know, we just, it's just a kind of a do no harm mentality, but it was just talking through them. They kind of told me what they, their view of the world was, told them kind of what I was looking to do with a business and how I wanted to handle it. Wouldn't say that, you know, revisionist history would be nice to say, I planned on doing this big roll up across the country like we're doing, but I had an idea it was possible, but you know, I that wasn't, it wasn't a roadmap that you wrote down and say, Hey, I'm going to acquire seven foundries. No, I mean, we, I'd done some MA roll ups in my corporate days. So yeah. I certainly knew it was feasible, but 
I, I couldn't barely spell SBA as the joke I normally make. I had no idea how you find financing. I didn't know what a business broker was or how these things actually transacted in the small space. I, I, you know, now everybody knows of search funds and ETA and all these acronyms. Then someone asked me like, oh, you did a self-funded search and entrepreneurship through acquisition. And I, I didn't know what that was 18 months ago. So yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. I just went to a bank and gave them cash and they gave me money to buy a business. That That's the extent of what I knew about uh, how any of these terms worked and how. It, uh, so been an interesting. So what did you do with the business? Uh, I mean, let's say first hundred days, you didn't change it. Did you put things in place to improve it? Operational excellency or just. Uh, it was mainly no. I mean, it was more about learning the industry. Um, we didn't really do hardly anything. The business was flatted down over the last few years. I mean, the, the old owners, they had no desire. And this is pretty typical in any of these small businesses. They didn't like, you know, they'd been at it. They had money. They didn't, they could have grown. They just chose not to want to have to spend that amount of time. They weren't right. pushing themselves. No, so they, they, were, they, yeah. they were, uh, they were spending three months a year in the Bahamas and two months a year on their, at their lake cabin. And I uh, spent a bunch of other time driving around the country in an RV and, you know, would get back to, get back to customers in 45 or 60 days. So, you know, it wasn't uh, <laughs> it was an interesting, interesting situation, but good way so to we stop, change uh, some of the simple stuff. And we started telling our customers that we were open for more business and that, you know, we just did nothing more. Kind of the only thing that I instilled in our folks, which is pretty simple to think about is, Number one, it you know keep employees healthy and safe. Number two, take care of customers. Number three, build a quality product. Number four, deliver that on time. And then number five, think about profit. And that's about the only thing that we did early on. And just by doing those, say, simple things, getting back to customers, making sure that we were doing the right thing. Um, was that? You know, let me ask you that. Was that hard? Because those uh, that culture kind of rolls downhill from the founder. And if you're if Whoever's there right now is yeah. not getting back. I mean, how did your new culture jive with this old yeah. culture? Yeah, I mean, they were they were happy to see the business grow, and I, I mean, they had a great culture already. It's just that you know the new business they weren't interested in doing. The existing business, they had teams in place, everything was great, take care of the customers, do whatever they needed to do. But it was like, yeah, new business that takes a lot of work, or you know, I'd rather hang out on my boat in the middle of the Bahamas. Uh, and I totally get that when I'm 67, I really hope I'm doing the exact same thing to be perfectly yeah, yeah. honest with you, but hopefully the business is not reliant on me in any way, shape or form by then. And I've really screwed something up. So, you know, it, the culture adapted really well. That's one of the big things we actually look for. Same thing. I used to look doing M and a inside of corporate America, it's, you know, it's really hard to fix culture. It's brutal to merge two different cultures together. So that's another thing we look for. Yeah. I don't think you can. I mean, I've I've read some books about that billion dollar mistakes and it's always the culture that doesn't jive. Yeah. 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 That's for sure. It's, you know, now we've got a playbook. We know exactly what we're running, but we still go in. So there's roughly speaking in these small foundries that we have, there used to be about 770 of them pre-COVID. Admittedly, I don't know exactly how many there are. We've talked to a little over 600 of them across the country. So we have an exact playbook of where we're going to go next, how we're going to do it, which ones we want to buy. You know, We know who's got the best, we can perceive at least to be culture, but they have the best reputations, good people, whatever it might be. So 
we tend to go find one in an area uh, that becomes what we call our beachhead. And they already know you. They know who you are. They've got your email address, and they're yeah. When they, if I don't know them, like um, the one we're buying right now, I talked with him three years ago, and so he and I, he said, "Hey, went through this stuff. I won't get into details. Doesn't really matter." He said, "But jump on an airplane. Let's figure out how to get this done." And so we've done a couple other details uh, or a couple other deals. Our last one we did in Cincinnati. I hadn't talked to them because they were technically a captive foundry, and. So they just knew and they talked to somebody in the industry and they said, Oh yeah, call Reg. He's buying these things. And kind of what's a, a, you have to enlighten me. What's a captive foundry? Sorry. Um, so a uh, captive would be just building something. Like if you're a Ford, you own your own foundry and you're only building product. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. For us, we would be at more of an OEM foundry. Um, so someone can come to us. We'll build. Open to bids anywhere. from anybody. Yeah. 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 And it, Every is different. The first one, Ermark, did you ha- did you take the role as general manager or president and go to the office every day, or did you have a number two that you worked with, uh, and or install or hire a GM? Yeah, so there were people who were running the shop, kind of the day to day manufacturing, and there were people who were running the office side of it. But I really took on more or less everything else. So. You know, my background, having done GM work, uh, GE, you, you get finance, whether you like it or not. I've got an MBA as well. So helped out a bunch with some of the finance with our office manager who didn't have that background. And on the other side of it, for the folks who were, you know, for me, it was really marketing sales, just ensuring people were getting called back, taking care of customer problems. And then it was really about networking and growing and getting to know our folks both internally and then the people that we were working with. And so the big thing with the people that we were working with that I found out was that I would literally just go grab small part deliveries and I would go meet people and I'd find out exactly what was going on at our customers. And they'd be like, oh, it's great. You brought this, your other competitors, they don't deliver on time. They've got this quality problem. They've got this. And so then, you know, it was leverage points. So I probably learned as much just getting out talking to people, developing the relationships, et cetera. And so with that, and I think a big part of it was as then people spread out. So if you were a buyer at one company and you moved to a different company, then all of a sudden it became, hey, those guys over there are doing really good work. We should go talk with them. And that just kind of started to spread from a a customer standpoint. And then from a competitor standpoint, as I just went around. So first 18 months, I pretty much ran all the day to day. Um, and then six months spent going to buy the the second one and six months integrating it and then turned it over, hired a president to run everything. And since then I haven't done any of the day to day. I'm literally now just kind of a CEO M and a, that's really my own role that I have left in the company. Why did you buy the second one? What was the inspiration to go? I know that you had the M and A experience in the other did jobs. Was was your yep. ultimate goal to say, I, I, I just want to acquire more, or I'm trying to get the multiple up where one plus one equals three? Or what was <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, I had no idea. Mul- multiple arbitrage, uh, and what I'm learning now is had nothing to do with my thought process. It was purely that we had some equipment we needed to control our own destiny. And it was a million and a half dollars to buy that piece of equipment. And I could go acquire a business for 225,000 with a book of sales as well. So 
you know, I guess uh, that is, uh, that's an awesome idea. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, uh, it was substantially easier to go acquire, pick up, move in and, you know, uh, and integrate the two facilities. It, uh, you know, so it, so that acquisition, I would say probably, man, I'm going to have a tough time guessing at it, but it probably returned us 20 X within the three years we've owned it. If yeah. More. How'd and you finance just, that? You didn't need to go to the SBA for that. You could just, no, we just did, we did an equipment financing loan through a local bank and then cash. Yeah. Um, so it was nice and easy. It was, is the seller still with the business or is he off no. gone? None of our sellers are, none of our sellers are involved in any of the businesses. Yeah. We typically, especially, I mean, partly right. We end up buying these when no other family wants in They're in their sixties. They've kind of run it. So we don't have anybody that typically lasts much more than six, eight, 10 weeks. Um, first time we did one of these, it, uh, you know, it was, it was a weird situation, but yeah, they were out of the business in six weeks for the most part. They came back and helped me, but they're like, yeah, you're doing well. Don't worry about it. You're good. You'll be fine. And yeah, like, yeah. Oh, we're going on our boat in the Bahamas. We're good. We're so done. Good for them. It out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was no so problem. why did you buy the third one? I, I mean, now we have a couple of options to control your destiny. You know, yeah. it was either to get a one plus one equals three yeah. or just I got to acquire to grow bigger. It's like the. Uh, uh, yeah. So our key insight. To imperative. Doing, yeah. It was just we just realized that there's a, there's a simple bifurcation of customers in our world. One is the big you know, GE, Honeywell, Siemens, you name it, the big manufacturers in the world. They're happy to give, you know, 90, 95% of all their purchases from foundries will be overseas. And then they'll want to split up their last 5%. They don't want, you know, they want to make sure if your small foundry burns down, they have a secondary supplier. Well, in our case, as soon as we got multiple facilities, we eliminated that risk. So now we'll get 100% of their business. We just become an easier to say, like, hey, deliver a quality product on time. The rest of it, we don't really care about. The other side of our customers. So that's base, kind of like a vertical integration, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's just ge- it's geographically dispersed, though, right? Yeah. So we're in right now we're in Minneapolis, uh, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and New Hampshire, and then we've got well, there's the big the one we're doing right now that I mentioned, and then we've got 13 others that we have kind of lined up that are in the the funnel that are going to go through the process at some point in time as well. But then, sorry, then the other side, the second set of our customers are the small local places. You know, grandma had an, or grandpa had an idea, dad had an idea, it was a small company, whatever it might be. And they love to be able to get up, get their kids off to school in the morning, drive in, shake hands, you know, have lunch, head back home and time for dinner. And so then they, you know, within, they have to be within kind of four hours to do that. So we just have big concentric circles all over the country and, we go in and investigate in a local region who might be the best boundaries to look at to uh, purchase and who we'd want to tuck in after that, make a map, go talk to everybody. And we just realized, you know, the more we can do that, the better off we are. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, what Amazon does. We got a, uh, you know, Amazon distribution house and it's like, I can place an order today and maybe get it at 4 PM. Yep. Like yeah, that yeah, is just yeah. crazy. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's not quite that fast in the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> of course not, but it's the, the same strategy. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, instead of having to get every single thing bigger, you know, and, it, and it's not really a hub and spoke. It's more of a mesh network mentality. So we can move, we can run center of excellence type concepts. So, you know, we're now large enough that we can buy, 
the best foundry equipment pretty much in the world. And, you know, we can do that at a small foundry. They can still serve small customers. We don't have to go chase big customers. We don't have to go chase low margin, unprofitable work. We're able to balance and say, oh, that production should be run over there. Like we're slow here, you know, or this is a more efficient machine. We should be building it there. And so that's kind of how the network affects just the scale efficiencies continue to compound on each other. And just yeah, you know, that's a, if you ever read the uh, Andrew Carnegie's biographies, uh, you know, he talks about that. He's like, right. they had to update the foundries every, I don't know, five, 10 years yeah. to get better efficiency because more yeah. and more people were getting into the business of steel. Yeah. 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 And yeah, it's kind of going the other way. Now there's less and less people getting into the business of foundries, uh, especially in this country, right? But um, I think that it's it's one of those things where, and that's a running joke. It's funny you keep mentioning uh, Carnegie because that's what my buddies, they, they think this is more just hilarious, right? They're GMs at places like Meta and uh, Microsoft and Amazon. Literally, that's my golf group I have this afternoon that I'm going to play with. And I think it's hilarious that uh, I'm in the foundry industry. So I always get the picture whenever I say I'm going to do another deal and can't show up for golf. Then I get the little picture of, Hey, Andrew Carnegie, he, he died with uh, out any friends too, just like you're going to at the rate you're going. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the running joke. But he was the buddy. richest man uh, in the planet uh, for a while. Yeah. I don't have to worry about that. I'm, uh, that. That won't be my, that won't be my life, but yeah. How, how did you uh, start financing these others, like the Patriot, Superior, Cushman? Yeah. So we did, after we got done with the SBA, so you can only get to that, we mentioned that, $5 million and then a few on top of it. The SBA is a great program. It's about the only option we're going to start, you know, as an initial wanting to buy a small business. But after you get through it, get a few more, build a track record of success, you can go to some of these smaller local and regional banks, especially ones that have done business with these places forever. So the one that we did, for instance, I'll just use one as an example, the one in Kansas City, the grandparents that had the foundry initially were friends with the grandparents that started the bank. And so they'd known them for 50 years Hey, we need you to help like finance this to get this done. Don't want to do an SBA deal. And so the bank said, All right. And they go, wait a minute. First of all, you're selling the business? Yeah, we're done. Yeah, we're done. Yeah. So it was one of those things. Kids didn't want to be part of it. They wanted, and so literally we just did a deal and they're like, Hey, we understand the business. And I think I'm gonna make the number up, but it's in the ballpark. They're like, All right, we'll finance 90% of the real estate and 80% of the assets. So it blended to be, you know, we, I think we had to put down 12% or something in cash to do the deal. Uh-huh. Well, that's been pretty typical. And now that we're larger, we don't, you know, we're in the traditional financing, like I mentioned over $5 million. So now it just gets to the point where, you know, we're going to banks, we're going to refinance our entire debt stack right now, restructure all of our companies, take advantage of kind of that C corp, holding company model with a bunch of different C's and LLC's underneath moving everything around for tax and, and legal purposes. But then ultimately from that structure, then when we redo the debt stack, I'm just going to go say, Hey, I want four X EBITDA or five X EBITDA and, you know, more or less every 12 months we'll review. And that's about it. But as we don't have a hunting license to just go do whatever we need to do, I don't need to be having conversations about 
individual deals or whatever else. As long as I meet the covenants and continue to grow, if I'm buying it too, it's pretty easy, right? Get, you buy a 2X, continue to grow. You never have to worry about that 4X number. So yeah, yeah. that's where we're at right now. The just a, It's a totally different animal for finance. Is that talking to private equity or hedge funds or somebody else to give you a kind of a, a, a basically rolling bank? Yeah. No, that's we're gonna do that with a with a regular traditional bank. Oh, okay. So start typically, you know, you do over five million in EBITDA. You can find some regional folks that are interested in lending across the country, and they might get you to, you know, fifty million, let's say, in total debt. And as you get bigger, you know, you get into the ten, fifteen, twenty million dollar EBITDA numbers. Just bank, you just grow with the banks as they go. So, yeah. So where are you at with it? the size of the businesses you're buying are you buying the larger 2 million 10 million ebitda businesses yeah i mean we tend not to want those we certainly don't want 10 million um but you know something that for us we want to say small you know stuff that private equity doesn't want to buy that individual buyers probably can't buy yeah that fit in our roll-up picture um so it's you know it's we've bought some as small like some of the tuck-ins done like $130,000 $130,000 a year, which is interesting. That that one that we, we did it for one X at 130 and it's going to do a million two this year. And so you figure right now we're probably to, I mean, we could probably get seven, eight, nine pretty easy on a multiple for private equity where we are. So you buy it at one. For that's the total holding company, right? Yeah. 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 So we can buy it. At, we can do this a lot. We can buy them at one or two, especially the impaired businesses. You know, that's where the tuckins really add a lot of value. You know, the beach has your, your kind of main businesses. You're not typically going to get, those are probably more around three or four, but we can still typically double eh, at a minimum, probably 30 to 50% increase in profitability within a couple of years. And then we'll pretty much double them once we get them to, to scale in size. So, you know, we'll be, you know, eventually it'll be a hundred. On some of these tuck-ins or adjacent type of businesses, do you, is it, you see them because you can bring customers immediately to them? Uh, So we, the tuck-ins, we actually buy and shut down and move into one facility. So it would be a geographic. Oh, I see. Eliminating competitors. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, it's partly that it's, it's, it's most of those shops wouldn't, aren't sellable. So we're, but you got the equipment out. for them, but which we'll would have cost it, you a million. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll give them, you know, we can take out the customer base because the other option really, right. The, we always offer all those employees jobs because we're local, right? So we'll go buy our first one in a, a geographic area and then we'll buy them around, buy up some of the competition, if not all, all the competition around. There's a lot of them I and mean, they're not big enough. You know, you, you can't go buy a hundred thirty thousand dollar company. It's impossible. You couldn't pay that. There's no debt service. There's no. I mean, how would you do it? Yeah, impossible. Yeah. So, you know, we can essentially buy the book of business, take the equipment that we need, scrap the rest, and then the sellers can sell their real estate. And uh, you know, that's kind of the the playbook that we've had. And I mean, that's not a. I don't. I don't know if it's a, a novel playbook, but we haven't seen it in small manufacturing yet. And so we're just continuing to run this and. Uh, Josh Schultz, he's uh, he's the president. He's just an operating savant. Uh, he, he's going to come in. We're going to do this. So this will be the first manufacturing platform we roll up. But we'll go do this exact same thing in another three, four, five years. Once we've done the foundry roll ups, we're going to go figure out the next one we want to go do and just keep replicating. Yeah. This. Where did you find him? Twitter. 
Twitter mm-hmm. on like SMB Twitter or something exactly. or what? SMB Twitter. Yep. That's a huge, huge community. And he and I happen to be, so I had a, uh, I had a, the past president, the one that I hired kind of two and a half years in, he was with us for a couple of years and decided that he wanted to go back and do what he used to be doing. And, uh, Josh was one of the few other folks in SMB Twit that, uh, were really big into, everything that we were doing from a manufacturing standpoint, he was talking about operations and quick version of the story is he more or less said, Hey, I'll, I don't really want to do consulting. I don't want to work for anybody else. I just want to be able to run ops, but the only way I can really run operations and do it my way is I've learned I'm going to have to own it. And uh, so I said, well, that's great. How do you know, how do you want to structure it? And he said, well, I'll help you 18 to 24 months, but then at the end you need to help me buy a business so that I can go back and run ops. And I was like, are you, you just want to run operations. Like that's what you really want to do. You don't want to be a CEO. And he said, no, I'm like, I have a way better plan than you just coming to work with us for like 18 months. How about just come on as like the president and COO. You don't have to barely talk to me for all I care. If you don't want, like I operations is not my thing. Dotting I's and crossing T's from a, a daily basis. I can do it through M and a just cause it's, you know, once, twice, three times a year process. I still hate it. I'm hiring. I'm. Su- I will soon be hiring an associate. Uh, I've decided after doing this last process. Um, what's anyway, the What's yeah. the part that you hate about it? Uh, anything that's detail oriented. Like once it gets into the. <laughs> do you have ADHD or something, or just? Uh, I, I'm certain I do. Yeah. But just it, it just like I don't know the best way to say it, but the individual stuff I feel like that clogs my brain up that. I'm worried about making 97 decisions today. Just never works out well for me. It's way better. You end up making none. Yeah. 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 Like, and this is what we joke about. Josh and I easily have the same impact on a company each year, but you know, he makes a thousand decisions or helps his team make a thousand decisions. I might make one or four. Uh, Uh Josh and I talk all the time, but I love just the M and a side of it. I spend a ton of time, just developing relationships, talking with people. It's the running joke on a scale of one to 10 on extroversion where 10 is a lot. I'm about a 63. So I need to be out. I love just figuring it out. And then the art of the deal is a lot of fun. Yeah. As soon as we get it to like, you're done and you're moved on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so terrible. Like this is, this is what the, the running joke was about this too. Like the first one I bought, I was so excited. Couldn't believe like driving in, first 18 months, probably like, Oh my God, I actually own this thing. The second one, it's probably like six months. The third and fourth ones were, I think I made it like four months when we were in New Hampshire. Um, I made it like two months for the fifth one, a month and a half in Kansas city. I think I made it about two weeks for the last, uh, the one we did in January because Josh uh, was busy the first two weeks. And this next one, like, I signed the LOI today and I'm like, oh God, here we go again. So that, that timeline is compressing uh, much, much greater to the point where I, I love getting that signed, but now I'm definitely going to need an M&A associate, uh, something here to start taking care of this, uh, make sure I don't miss anything. So if you're an M&A associate, get yourself on Twitter and follow exactly. uh, Reg. Come find me. Like, you want to <laughs> learn how to you want to learn how to build and run uh, businesses. We'll uh, we'll give you a credit. It's always it's like that story from uh, that Uber. Uh, Travis Kalanick uh, mm-hmm. is uh, first vice president of business development from yep. Twitter. 
Yeah. Hire me. Yeah. You want to do this? Hire me. Exactly. Hire me. It'll be that thing. Yeah. Uh, there you go. So, <laughs> so you do definitely have plans to wash, rinse, repeat on this. Yeah. 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 So we've got, we've got a pretty easy, I mean, right now, if we had the bandwidth to absorb companies, really integrate them well, and Josh is doing a much better job of that every step of the way. And we had infinite financing, which the financing will be a lot easier to do than the, the integration. I mean, we'll have an easy path to a hundred million plus in sales with this. And with these seven or, or more no, no, with, oh, as yeah. we're, we'll probably do, I think we'll probably do another 10 ish to get to there. But I mean, yeah. It'll, yeah, it'll be probably three, four years, something like that, or maybe five depends on, you know, the part of it is, I can't make these deals happen. It's, it's it's the sellers that get to make the decision. Yeah, you only have a pool of like seven hundred now, and yeah, then yeah, they're yeah. like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink unless <laughs> right, you make exactly. them thirsty enough. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I and I refuse to overpay. So we'll pay what they're worth and what we can make them run at, but that's about it. So yeah, and that's just the so we'll have a next plan, and you know we're developing things on the side where we'll just be able to go drop in the operating system of how, if you're running small manufacturing in this country, you know, we'll be able to give you stuff, leverage cutting edge ERPs, and then all the backend systems we're putting around. And those are all shared within the holding company. Yeah. That's, that's how we do it today, but then we'll figure out, right. The next thing becomes, do we want to be selling that? You know, do we want to have our own operating system? Turn an expense into a profit center. Yeah, exactly. We want to be leveraging this, this out do we want to we're creating because we've outgrown most of the ability you'd actually outsource a lot you know fractional cfos yeah, or yeah. accounting or marketing like but we're building all these back-end systems so we've got one that we're building right now in the philippines we've got one we're building right now in monterey so we've got our people hired that are doing data analytics and people that are able to program. Josh is uh, an AI ML guy. So we're going to be putting in, you know, some of the no code tools and some of the coding capable of seeing insights inside of the systems. Well, if you want one or two or three of these, you just have no ability to get that. So why don't we go give people leverage on how, and, and most of the platforms, right? They're not built to do small manufacturing and there's tens of, there's hundreds of thousands of these things. I mean, you, there's just in Minneapolis alone, there's probably 2,500 machine shops um, in every single city that makes a product, which is quite literally almost everywhere, which people are shocked. Like, yes, that still happens in places like San Francisco and New York city and whatever. Like it's still, it, it's not readily apparent and visible, but they're still there. And so all of that is a potential market or, you know, we, we don't know if we want to do it. That's as much as, helping other people try and figure out how to leverage this and making us more competitive in local manufacturing, which we obviously need to be as we learn throughout COVID. So now the question becomes, what do we go do to figure out next? Do we go roll up another industry? Do we figure out how to help other industries make it? I mean, it's, it's already not about the money for us. So it's gotta be about something. It's gotta be about a legacy. It's gotta be about putting a dent in the universe I say this and I don't, it's the reason why I didn't put my name on the top of the company, but I really want people to turn around in 10, 15, 20 years and say, Hey, those folks over at Canecast, they literally changed the way that small foundries worked. And then we'll come up with a different name and we'll do the same thing in some other industry or, yeah. 
our bookkeeping or whatever else might be to help enable folks. So interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. we'll do it again. I mean, we have the playbook now. There's not really, you know, it's been just five and a half years. I'm at now five and a half years of misery, but certainly uh, two, three years worth of misery. Yeah. Hard work is done now, though. So uh, now it's now so it's execution. If you were to all the people behind you going, hey man, I, I'd love to follow, do exactly what Reg does. What what, yeah. what do you recommend? Like the steps and dragons to avoid or to do this that yeah so, uh, those are, there's so many things and I'll, I'll give a shameless plug and it's not just me but this yeah, yeah. smb twitter thing yeah you gotta go follow that didn't exist five and a half years ago at all at least not that i had any knowledge of the all the books that are you know walker d bills the the buy then build um there's all kinds of eta resources there's so many things out there that'll tell you about how you go buy a business. And if you think about how the number of people that start and are successful versus the number of people that buy and are successful is like a 10 X difference. Yeah, and no, I've done the startup game. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's I mean, like, uh, yeah, it's a million, it's like a, you know, that one movie, it's a million ways to die in the West. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that there's, and, and, you know, and, and you have the Lindy principle behind you in small business, right. Where if it's been around for 50 years, there's a really good likelihood it's going to be around for another 50. So with you know, or without you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the best yeah. part with or without you. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> um, and so to me, like, that's where, you know, there's so many resources out there to learn the simple answer. I always tell people, let's say you want to jump in. I don't care. Pick your W2 income or pick how much ever money you want to take out of your business. Let's say it's 250,000. Multiply, multiply that number by three or four. That's the minimum you want to go look for in SDE. If people aren't familiar with that term, it's essentially yeah, yeah. EBITDA plus seller's benefits. So salary, cars, whatever. So if you want to make 250,000, go look for a business at a minimum of like 750. You can you know, probably buy that for 4X. That's 3 million bucks. You probably need 10 to 15% for an SBA. So, you know, you know that really simple like all right i need three hundred four hundred thousand dollars and i can go buy a business then after you look through that you know it's just a standard strategic MA understanding right i mean there's a lot of things you know a lot of elements to look for the etas of the world which uh, especially search funders they look for things very different because they hate they would hate my business i'm like unbuyable for those folks because we have yeah. high capex and you know, all the things that they would hate to see, but U.S. Steel, man, you are yeah, yeah, Car you gotta Carnegie. Like, I got to yeah, pronounce yeah. that right. You're right on that yeah. earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like it's uh, and when you look at that, you got to go figure out like what you're willing to accept. You can't go buy a deal for three X. You're gonna have hair on it somewhere. It's gonna have customer concentration. No perfect customer. There's no perfect deal. There's yeah. never ever. And then so we, I talk to people that are looking to buy all the time. And they want to eliminate everything. I'm like, not going to eliminate it. You're just going to figure out how to deal with it. So figure out what you, if you're a great sales guy, don't be so worried about customer concentration because you're going to go get it. If you're a tech person and that's what you need, great. Uh, get in there and don't worry about it because you could probably go solve the problem of what a key person leaving would be. So figure out what you can minimize and risk from your background or what you can hire. And then get after it. It's, you know, figuring out the customer moats. It's, uh, you know, it's all the stuff that Porter's five forces and the standard marketing plan. And you don't have to sit down. I, I hate these folks that 
Yeah, they write out a giant business plan or the bankers ask for Yeah, all this. don't do that. You're just and wasting like, it. You're it's called procrastination. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's, it's always the the Mike Tyson. Like everybody has a strategy until you get punched in the face. So that's, that's right. It it never I mean I, I like thinking out through it and making sure you understand the assumptions and whatnot, <clears throat> but for the most part, it's really about just finding something that you personally want to be part of that you add value to. And that, you know, it's on the bigger side that you can figure out how to mitigate risks that either you bring in or risks that the company brings to you. Yeah. Hey, let, me, let me give you a point there because we I looked at an IT firm yesterday, had a meetings with the sellers, and most of their programmers were in Serbia. Mm-hmm. I said, look, great. I just don't know anything about Serbia. Serbia mm-hmm. is really t- uh, closely attached the only country that didn't sign sanctions with Russia, yeah. just not a hundred percent sure. So we passed on the deal. Yeah. It's too much risk. Yeah. Yeah. And you never know. And again, like, and there might be somebody who's from Serbia or knows somebody in Serbia or who knows what, that that's totally fine for that risk. Like fine. That's, yeah. That's it, mitigated. Uh, it is, that's yeah. You gotta, it, it, everybody's totally different. So what I look at is a deal that is unsellable or unbuyable for most people, totally impaired. I love it. Like, great. You guys, we literally did this on one deal. Their top two customers were over 80% of the deal. But as soon as you dropped them inside our network, it meant nothing to me. Like, I don't know. They're like 3%. As a platform company, that would have been difficult. As a, yeah. yeah. But for us, once you jump it inside all of us, it's like, okay, no big deal. I mean, so that's a different risk mitigation. But at the same time, there's other things that we like. Our first one, we had the major risk that I initially identified, and this is still the same problem, it's actually substantially worse. And it's why foundries are almost impossible to buy now as individual buyers. Um, you think about when everybody started to go overseas with product in the 80s and 90s, all that knowledge then left. So there are some people, but there weren't people coming in in their 20s back in 1994. And so you fast forward, all those folks, when we bought this company the first time five and a half years ago, they were in their early to mid 60s. Well, if you look at the industry 6 years later, you know, 80% of that knowledge is gone. That's so, a, you know that there was a episode of uh, Bill Gates some kind of Netflix and talking about yeah. the brain drain for nuclear power plants left. Oh, so yeah. we Same. nobody here knows how to build nuclear plants. They got plans, right. but they haven't done one in right. such a long time that yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they built one in 30 years or whatever. You kind of forget because there's not a lot of people that are left. Yeah, there's no experts, right? <laughs> but that's the exact same thing. So that's a so we know we that was far and away my number one risk that I saw as uh and doing the first acquisition. So we went in our first three deals actually. Uh, no, actually our first well three four of our first five, we kept the key people on in a non-working, it was just knowledge. So the one guy we paid to just stay on at, he, he wanted to retire. We kept him on at halftime. So he didn't have to do any physical work. All we did was train people. We hired someone to help write down processes. We learned, and we've done that now two or three times. So now we've got a training academy, essentially, that we're building all the same knowledge. We can move people across our foundries we can solve that key man risk. We don't have it. Like every other place we go talk to. Those are uh, definitely good routes for a bigger fish down the road. I mean, yeah. yeah. And it's and the it's base that you're creating. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, and that's where, uh, you know, it's funny whenever we joke about this, people are like, it's like you actually had a plan. I'm like, yeah, some yeah. plan, some stumble in it. Yeah. You figure it out as you go. But the, uh, 
but that's the big thing is, you know, once you minimize the risk and identify it, then you just got to do whatever it takes. And you can't, you know, the biggest thing, especially if you're going to buy a small company and you have key personnel risk, you just can't be held hostage by that. You have to figure out how to eliminate that risk or else, I mean, you're essentially just owning the company for someone else to take advantage of you. So you got to figure out how to minimize risks there. Yeah. Same thing with big customers. It's no different. Got to diversify away. You can't let one big customer dictate. Can you fix it? I mean, you got to ask yourself, can you fix it? Yep. Exactly right. Yep. Reg, thank you so much for being on this show. This was very informative because I love this direction on this and the detail. So, yeah. Yeah, Thanks for having me on. I love it. Uh, Yeah. I'll tell anybody that's uh, listening anything else. I, not everybody should own an, own your own small business, but if you choose to do it, find me on Twitter at Reg Zeller. There's a huge group. Like I will do anything I can to help you. I will not encourage you to do it because it's a miserable, lonely existence <laughs> at the beginning. Don't get me wrong. Well, a lot of people want to live but, through that misery though. So yeah, like exactly. Misery. I'm just yeah. like, but hey, once you're in, I'm happy to help. Yeah. Uh, Thank I you so much. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah. And if you like this show, make sure you hit the like button and the bell so you can see more content like this. Thanks, Reg. Thanks, John. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for watching this video. Make sure you're a subscriber by clicking on this button right here down below. And if you want to watch more Serial Acquire interviews, click on this button right here. If you're ready to buy your first business, get my course at dealflowsystem.net right here. Take care. Cheers, John.